Well, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're looking at verses 35 through 44 this morning. The text extends further, but I'm not going to get that far. 1 Corinthians 35 to 44. Let's read God's word together. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that you are willing to show us and tell us about what is to come. You don't give it just for information purposes. You give it so that we would live in light of it. And I pray that we would see this life is not all there is. We would see that there is a glorious life to come. But we have to live this life in this body now. And we need to live it for your glory now. But we get to exchange it in for a new one. Praise the Lord. We're so grateful for what is to come because we're going to be with you and we're going to be with you forever. And that is what matters. Turn all our hearts and attention to this glorious Savior who has laid himself low so that he can raise us up. Not for our glory, but for his. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, most most kids, somewhere in their educational career, put a lima bean in a styrofoam cup at some point with some dirt. They put that cup on the windowsill, they put a little water in there, and then over the next few days, that seed starts to germinate. The hard shell around that bean, it it opens up, and out comes something unexpected, right? Not really, because this is a normal process, isn't it? But it's neat to see it happen right on your windowsill. This sprout comes up, and if you, let it, uh, it, it, if you let it keep going, in two to three months, that little sprout from that little bean is going to be about two feet tall. When you put the, in the ground, what you put in the ground is nothing like what comes out of the ground. Little did you know, at the time when you were putting that little seed in the styrofoam cup of dirt, that you were witnessing something glorious. You are witnessing an illustration that God has put into the natural order of things to tell us about what is to come, to help us understand what is to come in our resurrection. So, Paul is talking about the resurrection. He's helping to solve some problems in the thinking of the Corinthians. But he starts first with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He does that in the first 34 verses. He established that the dead are indeed raised and how significant their belief in the resurrection of the dead is to their Christian walks. And Paul's now ready to answer the question that's been at the heart of their confusion all along. Not the reality of Christ's resurrection. No, they believed in that. They put their trust in that. That's why they became Christians. But confusion about their own resurrection reflected in the questions that Paul raises here in verse 35. But someone will say... How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Right? How can earthly bodies possibly be compatible with a heavenly existence? It's a decent question. So this sermon this morning is part two of a sermon that we started last week entitled Your Resurrection Body, fashioned by God to glorify Christ forever. I hope to show you that for every believer in Christ, God will resurrect and transform your earthly body into one fashioned by His power 
to glorify Christ forever. This is the this is the main point of what I'm putting out there. So let me say it again. God will resurrect and transform your earthly body into one fashioned by his power to glorify Christ forever. Now, here's a little public service announcement. The goal of preaching is change, specifically to grow in godliness. The power to change, it comes from the Holy Spirit. The means that the Spirit uses to change us is the Word of God. So our responsibility as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is to pursue growth in godliness by not only hearing the Word, but also by doing the Word. And with that goal in mind, I orient my sermons towards application. My sermon outline reflects the main points that I hope that you will take away from this text, these points of application. And by virtue of being here this morning, you each will be hearers of the word. But your priority is to make sure that you are not hearers only, but doers of the word by putting what you hear into practice in your life. So I have four applications from our text that I urge you to seek the Spirit's help in applying in your life. The first is listen to the skeptics' objections, because some of them might reflect your own misgivings about the resurrection of the dead, which might be keeping you from living the the living your life for Christ as you should. The second application is learn from the Father's illustration. For in it, we gain some much-needed hope and encouragement to press on in gospel ministry, even as our present bodies are failing. Look forward to your body's transformation. Right? This life is not all there is. It will end when your body gives out. But there is a life to come that will never end, and God will give you a glorious, imperishable body that will never break down, never lead you astray. Never tire in serving Christ in the eternal ages to come. And knowing this is going to help keep you focused on what really matters in this life and what doesn't. The fourth application is long for your Savior's appearing. Christ's return will bring an end to the challenges of following Christ in this fallen world and with these fallen bodies. But until that day, keep serving Him faithfully with the power and in the body that He has supplied. Okay, so we began last week looking at that first application. Listen to the skeptic's questions. But someone will say in verse 35, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? This represents the objections that the Corinthians had regarding the resurrection. And I asked you if their questions might also be hearing in them, you might be hearing your objections, your doubts, your denials, your fears that the resurrection of the body really is a good thing. The first objection was that the resurrection body is not possible. That just simply reflects unbelief. Over Over the thousands of years of mankind's existence, how can God possibly put bodies back together after they have turned into dust and been scattered, you know, about... It's just not possible. See, because the Corinthians could not fathom how this was possible, they refused to believe that it was possible. Even for God who created everything from nothing, who created each of their bodies. The belief that a resurrection body is not possible is nothing more than unbelief. The second objection was that a resurrection body is not probable. It was inconceivable to think of a future existence in bodies like the ones they presently had. As, you know, as well it should be, right? Given the problems I'm already having with my body at 54 years, what's it going to be like in 154 years? What's it going to be like in 154 million years? I don't even want to think about it. You see, Paul is explaining here how we're not going to be resurrected back into our present bodies, but to bodies that are ours, yes, but are wonderfully fit for God's, by God's power for eternal life. Now, a third objection that I pose, not really in the questions asked here, but I believe it's one worth mentioning because it's in the heart of unbelievers. A resurrection body is just not wanted. I don't want to be resurrected. The hope of the sinner is not in resurrection. It's in annihilation. The death, that death is simply the end of all existence. 
See, annihilation, the reason why this is desired over resurrection is because annihilation removes the problem of wickedness and sin and judgment. It means that the fear of death that resides in every unbeliever, well, that's misplaced. You just need to ignore that. But see, God has graciously put that fear in all men as this internal witness of their need to repent before death because after death comes judgment. Okay, so the objections raised by these skeptics are that a resurrection body, it's not probable and it's just not possible. Some objections are not the product of just mere skepticism. Uh, They come from someone, really, who refuses to believe or to take into account God in their assessment of ultimate reality. See, that's essentially what the Bible describes the fool as being. And, and so this is what Paul calls, not the Corinthians directly, but anyone who would think that way. He says, you fool, in verse 36. See, you know, if I, if, to our ears that, that sounds like an insult. I don't think Paul is really seeking to insult the Corinthians. He's seeking to assess the Corinthians. According to the Bible, the fool is the person who says in his heart, there's no God. And this describes the man in in Jesus' parable who was rich. He didn't have enough space in his barns to store up all the grain that he'd harvested. And so he said, well, I'm just going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build larger, bigger ones. And I'm going to put all that grain in there. And I'm going to live my rest of my life in ease, eating and drinking and laughing. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? See, in his self-centered planning, he had foolishly forgot to consider God in the assessment of reality. The biggest fool is the one who prepares for the life to come because they think there is no God. The person who would call the resurrection impossible or improbable is also thinking like one who says there is no God and therefore doesn't factor in his assessment of reality the creative power of God. The Sadducees were the sect of Jews who were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. We learned that as little kids. See, when they threw their theological curveball at Jesus about the resurrection and a bunch of men being married to the same wife and who's she gonna be, whose wife she going to be in the resurrection, they were trying to strike Jesus out. But instead, he crushed it. He sent it out of the park. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. Not only was resurrection taught in their very own Scriptures, but they were thinking like fools who know nothing of God's power. To expose the foolishness of thinking that God can't make a resurrection body suitable for a heavenly existence, Paul points to an illustration that God has worked into the very ordinary process in nature and this process is so ordinary not a one of them would even raise an eyebrow at it and yet here it is it's illustrating the power of god in resurrection our second application is to learn from the father's illustration first we listened to six questions now we need to learn from the father's Illustration. Listen to how Paul takes from this well-known world of seeds, the well-known world of seeds, and he applies it to the unknown world of the resurrection. Verse 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So Paul's illustration here has three points to it. His first point is that the seed must first die to come to life. He says, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. The seed that the farmer plants in the ground and it then decomposes as a seed. God has created the process of germination and by his design, the seed must cease to exist in its original form as a seed before it can come to life in its final form and emerges a plant. And guess what? 
That's the same type of thing that happens with the body in resurrection. The old earthly body, it must die and it must cease to exist in its current form before new life can emerge. The only exceptions to this process that requires the body to first die will be if we happen to be alive when Christ returns. Right? Paul addresses this in the next section in verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Okay, but, the, but we don't know when that's happening. And so we're going to think that life is going to go on like it always has been. That's part of how we're wired to work. You keep your eyes focused on the prize. You serve them, and guess what? You get to stop when you hear the trumpet sound, but until then, you, you rest when, you dead, when you're dead. That's when you rest as a Christian, when you're dead. Until then, we keep serving. The principle of death before life, is fundamental in Christian life. Now, Jesus, he applied it to his work of securing our salvation. He said in John 12, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his own death. The fruit of salvation would only come to life if he first died. Jesus then applied this principle's He turned around and applied it to his disciples. He said, he who loves his own life and he who uh, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. But Paul's purpose here, it's to overrule the objections that the resurrection body is impossible. They have no objections when they plant a seed in the ground. And a little while later, a new life emerges from that decomposed seed. The same process occurs in the resurrection. The body must die to come to life. Then Paul continues in verse 7. He says, And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Paul's second point is simply that the plant that grows will be different from the seed. The plant that grows will be different from the seed. That which you sow in the ground is a seed. That which emerges is a plant like wheat or something else. Now, the seed that you sowed, it looks nothing like the plant that grows. That's because the body sown is not the body that will be. It is God's design that the body is transformed and it's done by God's creative power. He says, but God gives it a body just as he wished. That's what he says in verse 38. You know, tulips are Rosita's favorite flower. Oh, she's out of the room. I can't, like, impress her with this story. You guys be sure to tell her about the tulip story. At our wedding, you know, i got to score points whenever I can. At our wedding, she walked down the aisle holding this beautiful bouquet of tulips. Now, there she is. She's never been one of those ladies who likes to receive, you know, fresh flowers. or You know, if I got in trouble, I didn't come home with a bouquet of flowers, but I think that might be changing. You all know her love for plants in recent years. But I knew, though, that even though she didn't like flowers, she would never look down on a bouquet of tulips because they brought us back to when she walked down the aisle and when we got married. A few years ago, we figured, you know, it's time we finally plant some tulips. She loves tulips. Let's plant some tulips in her front yard. That way we can enjoy them every spring. Now, how many of you have ever planted a tulip bulb? You take a look at a tulip, right? What does it look like? It's squatty and it's plain and it's brown. It's almost like planting an onion. And yet what emerges from the ground is something tall and slender and delicate and, and rich with color. The seed you grow looks nothing like the plant that, that you sow looks nothing like the plant that grows. The same is true for humans. The eye sees nothing in a mortal, perishing body that promises any hope of resurrection to come. You just don't see it. A body that was once strong and robust and full of life in old age or in sickness, it's reduced to a shell of what it was. We've all seen that happen to our loved ones at one time or another. We're seeing it happen to ourselves year after year. Little by little. 
What hope of a resurrection can be seen in that? None. But like the seed sown in the ground, the process that God has designed means the body must die, it must decompose, and then by the same creative power that gives life to seeds, God will transform it into a body clothed with glory. In verse 38, Paul here is emphasizing this dramatic contrast between the seed and the plant. But God gives it a body just as He wished. The body that emerges is one that God gives. One that He wishes. The person who lives his life without accounting for the power and the plan of God in life and in death and in what comes after will be accounted a fool. He'll be the fool of fools. And Paul is very clear. Plants don't rise of their own choice or by chance. They rise because God determines them to rise. And in the same way, the resurrection of the dead is something willed by God. It's realized by God's power. That body that is committed to the grave, it will be called forth by God. And then it will be transformed into one fitted for glory. And only the fool doubts God's power to do that. You know, we are, we are given some glimpses of just how radically different Jesus' body was from the earthly one that was laid in the tomb. You know, the Sunday after Jesus died, the disciples were together and some, uh, they were hiding out from the Jews. They were in a room with doors shut so that they couldn't be seen. And then the Apostle John, who was there, he tells us, Jesus came and he stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. He simply appeared in that locked room. See, his body it was no longer limited by time or space or material substance. Prior to his appearing there, Luke tells us that he, was, he appeared to some men on the road who were going to Emmaus. And in his glorified body, Jesus was able to go from one place to another place without traveling by physical means, just simply at the speed of thought. He appeared and then he disappeared at will and he was able to enter a room without even opening a door. Jesus never did that in his earthly life. His resurrection body had been marvelously and radically transformed from what it had been, as will ours at his return, right? And it's at his return. It's John who tells us in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not yet appeared as to what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. Keep your finger here. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Follow along with me. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. See, your new body, friend, it's coming. But you first have to ditch this body, He says, of our humble state. That's the New American Standard. The King James calls it our vile body. But I think the English Revised Version is the one I like best. He calls it the body of our humiliation. The longer you live, the more humiliation your body subjects you to. But by the exertion of His power, by which He subjects all things to Himself, He says, in the resurrection, He says, He will transform the body that you now have and it will be a new glorious body that conforms with the body of His glory. It will be the body suited by God's power for a completely different existence and a completely different purpose. And so in this illustration of the seed, we see that the seed must first die to come to life and the plant that grows, it's going to be different from the seed. However, thirdly, both the seed and the plant have continuity. Both the seed and the plant have continuity. So in this process of the seed becoming a plant, there is never a change in the ultimate identity between the seed and the plant. 
It's the same body, it's only, it's in a different form. He says in verse 37 here, back in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for example, it's a bare grain. Let's say you, you sow a bare grain, perhaps of wheat. So he's talking about the seed now that's sown in the ground. And so you sow a bare grain of wheat in the ground. And then he says in verse 38, notice here, he says, but God gives it a body. He's still talking about the seed that you've sown. But God gives it a body. So we're still talking about that grain of wheat. Only it's not a grain of wheat anymore. It's going to have a different body. He says, to each of the seeds, a body of its own. So both the seed that you sow in the ground and the plant that comes out of the ground, they maintain continuity. It's the same thing, but in a different form. The grain of wheat is now a stalk of wheat. The form is different. It's been changed radically, but it is still wheat. It's always been wheat. The form is different, but it's still wheat. It didn't become barley or flax or corn. See, this is God's doing. God gives to each of the seeds a body of its own. Whose identity continues on into the plant that emerges. Right? That's the illustration And in the same way, there will be continuity between the body sown and the body raised. You will have a body in a different form in the resurrection. But your identity continues on with that new body. I think Paul might have had this continuity in mind perhaps back in chapter 6. So this goes back a little ways when we were back in chapter 6 of Corinthians. But do you remember? You might remember when he was warning them about fornication. Remember what he said there? He said, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And then he says this. He says, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Why, in chapter 6, why would he link sinning with your body with the resurrection of your body? I think he's showing us why right here. A Christian may not use the body for fornication as if it were something disconnected from a future resurrected life. He says, no, you need to flee immorality. It's a sin against your body, which you're going to have forever. Now, what will be the extent of this continuity? We need only to look to Jesus again. Right? Remember um, in verse 20, uh, back in 15, verse 20, if you look there, you see that he refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those who are asleep. Asleep, a euphemism for death there. He, he is not the only first raised as the first fruits, but he's also the prototype, so to speak. He's the prototype of all those who will be raised. And what we see after Jesus was raised is that no one recognized him unless he revealed himself to them. His disciples knew him, but only after he revealed himself to them. Then he was completely recognizable. They didn't have to be convinced it was him. Uh, They didn't have to be convinced that he wasn't somebody else, but Jesus inside that new body or anything like that. No, they recognized him. They were familiar with him. He even had the scars from the nails and the spear still present in his hands and in his side. Now, based on this, I'm confident that in our resurrected bodies, we will recognize one another. We always kind of assume that must be the case, but we can't quite put it together in our minds. I think based on this, we can know for certain we will recognize one another, but it, but it, it may take us telling each other first. Now, does that surprise you to hear that? I'll be honest, it was, it was like, hmm, wow, that is kind of surprising to think we may have to say, it's Nick, it's Nick. But you can probably relate to this. We can probably relate to this more than, than we think. A couple illustrations that I think bring this home. Have you ever played that game where you submit baby pictures of yourself? And you put all them up all on the board and then everyone comes around and writes down who you think it is? Sometimes it's easy, right? Oh, I could tell that's Joe. Oh, that's Cynthia. You know, it's just obvious, right? But other times it's not so easy. 
it's, it can be quite challenging. However, once you know who that baby is as an adult, what do you usually say? Oh, yeah, I totally see it. The eyes are there, the big nose, it's all there. The resemblance between yourself as a baby and you as an adult, it may be greater, it may be lesser, but there is definitely continuity. I think there's another example that applies as well. This one's at the end of your life and it's not so pleasant. It's a bit more humbling. Let's say you go to your 30th high school reunion. You know, if you're at your 30th high school reunion, at the least you spent one year with some of these folks, but in the most you might have spent 12 years or more with these people. First through 12th grade, right? And then you see them at the reunion and you can't even recognize them. It was my, I went to one high school reunion. It was my 10th, 1996. One of the guys there I knew since kindergarten. I'd moved away for a couple years, but basically was with him for a couple years, moved away, came back 6th through 12th grade. I was seeing this guy almost every day. We came face to face in the crowd. And he said, hey, Nick. And I gave that pause that says, I can't remember your name. And he hung his head. And I, as he was walking away, I said, I've known you the longest. I can tell you his name now. It's Richard Gardner. I felt horrible. I'd known this guy the longest in the room. Now, to be honest, he recognized me and I did recognize him. I knew who he was. I just couldn't identify him. See, these truths about our resurrection body are all illustrated from the ordinary world of seeds and plants. But the Father made this illustration so that we wouldn't doubt His creative power and think a resurrection body was not possible. The body we will have, it will be our body, but it will be in a different form that is suited for eternal life in heaven. So, we keep on serving Him in the body that we have even though it's getting weaker. Exhaust yourself in serving Him because when it, your body finally wears out, guess what? You get a new and improved one that will never wear out, ever. Now, in verses 39 through 44, Paul, he builds on this idea to further explain the transformation of our earthly bodies and what they will undergo in the resurrection. So as before, with his illustration of the seed and the plant, Paul points to the universe that that God created to make his point. He says simply observing the differences between creatures on the earth and, and stars and planets in the heavens, that should be enough to convince us that God will have no problem creating bodies that will have continuity to our present bodies, yet also be wonderfully different in their form. My hope that this illustration will help you is that it will help you to look forward to your body's transformation. In the right way, look forward to your body's transformation. It's our third application. See, the older we get, the more we look forward to a new glorified body. You know, as the aches and the pains and the weaknesses increase, the thought of a new body, it becomes increasingly desirable. But how about when you're younger? This is the younger section right here. How about when you're younger? You know, it's so easy to think, I, I, I haven't got a lot of mileage on this model yet. I'm not ready to turn it in. I want to keep going. Yeah, I get that. I was young once too. I remember saying, please God, don't come back. Don't send Jesus back until I get married. Please don't. That is a normal desire of youth. But be careful. Right? These, these important realities about life don't, don't change just because you're young. Make no mistake. It... It's all too easy to get caught up with life in this world and forget there is a life to come. God gives us many things to do and to enjoy in this life, but we must always, always, always be on guard against loving this world and the things of this world and being of this world. It's too easy to forget that this world and everything in it is passing away. And we need to be reminded of this truth often, regardless of our age, but especially, especially when we're young. Why? So that we will live our brief lives wisely from an eternal perspective. 
So let's hear why we should look forward to the transformation of our earthly bodies. First, our new bodies will have a transformed glory and purpose. A transformed glory and purpose. Look at verse 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differs, for star differs from star in glory. Now, Paul knows that the Corinthians, they can't understand how an earthly body can be made fit for heavenly life since it's not possible for something perishable to inherit what is imperishable. And so Paul begins by starting by stating really another observable truth from the world that God made. He says all flesh is not the same flesh. See, in the world that God made, he created an amazing variety of creatures and objects, all of which are different. First, he refers to earthly creatures and he uses the term flesh and it speaks of physicality, creatureliness. They are transitory, they are mortal, they are weak, they are flesh. And while they are all made of flesh, at the same time, it's not the same flesh. The flesh of men is different from the flesh of beasts and birds and fish. To each one, God has given them the flesh that they need to fulfill their purpose in their, in their respective domains. The flesh of men and beasts is for living on the earth. The flesh of birds, it's for soaring above the earth and the skies. And the flesh of fish, it's for swimming underneath the earth and the seas. And Paul then switches from the earth and he switches to the heavens. And in contrast to earthly bodies of flesh, you have heavenly bodies in which now he uses the term glory. And Paul uses glory probably just to refer to their radiance. Both heavenly and earthly bodies, they have a glory. They have a radiance to them, but they are radically different in form, in nature, in manifestation. And so he says in verse 40, he says, the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earth. It's another. It's of a different kind. See, we can look at the sun and the moon and the stars and we can know that that their glory is unlike anything on the earth. And in the same way, we can expect that the resurrected body fit for a heavenly existence, it's going to be unlike anything known to us now on the earth. Now, not only are heavenly bodies different from the earthly, but Paul notes that they also greatly differ from one another. The glory of the sun is a different glory than the moon and the stars. And then even the glory of one star, he says, that differs from the glory of another star. Now, Paul's not speaking here as, you know, as a scientist. Just a simple observer of the universe that God has created. I know that just, you know, from the deck of our cabin in Idaho, when we look up into the night sky, we can see all kinds of stars with all different kinds of glory. Some are bright, some are dim, some are twinkling, different colors. There's even one out on the horizon that we usually get to see. It's red. You know why it's red? Because it's not a star. It's Mars coming up on the horizon. These are all just observable to us. And if the moon is out, you can't see hardly any stars because it's so bright. The glory of the moon reflecting the sun just covers up all the night sky. See, when you put all this together, Paul is showing that fleshly creatures, they differ from each other due to their domains. The bodies of earthly creatures, well, they have a radically different glory than heavenly bodies. And heavenly bodies differ in glory from one another. This incredibly wide range of variety in creatures and bodies and glories. They were all the creations of the same powerfully creative one God. And then he says in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. That's why I've been telling you all this. Given the infinite variety that exists in the universe that God created, it should lead the Corinthians to expect that the human body experienced in this life is not the only kind of body possible. The resurrection body it will be transformed from that which was suitable for its earthly purposes to that of a different glory suitable for its heavenly existence and purposes. 
The resurrection body is not the same reanimated corpse. No, it will be transformed to a radically different glory that's suited now for a heavenly purpose. The God who provides appropriate bodies for dogs and for squids. Well, he, he also provides needed glories for the sun and for the moon. And he also provides different glories from one star to another star. Well, he can certainly be trusted to provide an appropriate heavenly body for those who are raised that will be as individual and as unique and suitable as are all the other forms. Of God's creation. You know, in the account of the transfiguration that we can read about in uh, Matthew, it says that Jesus was transfigured before, and it was Peter, James, and John. It says his face shone like the sun, his garments became as white as light. And this says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And then, you know, we know Peter, he speaks up and he says this to Jesus Lord, it's, it's, good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always wondered, how did Peter know who the other two guys were? It's not like he had pictures of who Moses and, and Elijah, what they looked like or anything like that. And here's another thing to add in. They didn't even have resurrected bodies. Like that only happens at Jesus' return. Even so, here are two long dead saints from the dead from the earth, and yet they're alive in heaven, and they are as distinctly individual and recognizable as they were on earth. In the resurrection, to our individual spirits, God will add our resurrection bodies, which will remain as unique and as individual as we are, and yet transformed in glory and in purpose. Now, Paul's not done. In addition to be to a transformed glory and purpose, our resurrection bodies will, secondly, they will also have a transformed quality and existence. A transformed quality and existence. He says in 42, it's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in a nat- an, it's, it is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so to help us understand just how, how wonderful this coming transformation will be, Paul lists some of contrast between our present bodies and our resurrection bodies. Four sets, to be exact. I say present and resurrection bodies, but Paul, he doesn't actually specify that he's talking about the body. What he says, though, is it is sown, it is raised. And I think it's safe, though, to assume that he's talking about our bodies. Can you, can you see, though, that Paul is, once again, he's emphasizing both difference and continuity the body raised will be in a radically different form from what you have now but it will be your body it will be you and it will be a you and a me that will have recognizable similarities now just a comment here briefly here about this word sown right he says uh, it is sown perishable he repeats it over and over i don't think that we should think when he says talking about the body when he says sown that he's referencing burial at death i mean we can see why we might think that but i just don't think that's what he's getting at here it's something more general uh i say this mainly because of verse 44 where he says if there's a natural body there's a spiritual body now that reading sounds clear though it's not exactly clear what paul means the greek is even tougher Uh, the phrase is really difficult to translate paul's not just referring to a natural physical body when he says this here It's more like what he's saying is a soulish body. So it's a body formed to be the instrument of the soul to carry out its wishes. So we don't refer to a dead body as a soulish body. It's not correct because the soul's already departed to be with the Lord. So I think Paul is just using this word sown here. Not to refer to burial, but to refer to one who's just born with the same qualities of which Adam was sown originally from, or created. And in contrast to that, we're raised, and we are raised with the quality of Christ. So we're sown with the qualities of Adam, but we're raised with the qualities of Christ. All right, so the first contrast is that our bodies are sown perishable, but raised imperishable. 
There's going to be a vast difference in the, in the durability of our bodies. Uh, as a result of the fall, our bodies are subject to death. They're perishable. All go to the same place, Ecclesiastes says. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. doesn't matter how robust or healthy you are. Right now, your bodies are going to age. Your joints are going to creak. Your muscles are going to sag. Your eyes are going to dim. You can try your hardest to fight off the effects of aging, but it will eventually catch you. There's a famous actor of another generation by the name of Jack Palance. He always played tough guy western parts. And in 1992, he won an Oscar as a supporting actor where he played a tough guy western dude in City Slickers. You might have seen that movie. And so he came out to accept his award on stage. And just to show how tough he still was at 73 years old, he dropped down and started doing one-arm push-ups. Pretty impressive. I mean, I find it difficult to do one-arm push-ups at 54, let alone 73. But nevertheless, 14 years later, Jack Palance died. You can be as healthy and as strong for as long as you try to be, but eventually you will die because you are perishable. But in the resurrection, your body will be raised imperishable. No sickness, no decay, no diminishing, no death. The second contrast is that our bodies are sown in dishonor but raised in glory. There's a vast difference in the value and the potential of our bodies. As a result of the fall, these amazing bodies created in the image of God and for the glory of God, guess what they've been used for throughout your life? Dishonoring God. In various ways and to various degrees, it's true of all of us. Right? That's why we thank God that He said a Savior of our ruined lives. Our lives used to dishonor God. See, when we die, we die with bodies that can be rightly characterized as vessels of dishonor. But in the resurrection, your body is going to be raised in glory. Never again will your body be used to dishonor God, but instead to perfectly praise and please and enjoy God to the fullest. The third contrast is that our bodies are sown in weakness and raised in power. There's going to be a vast difference in the ability of our bodies. How many of you have broken a bone? How many of you have had a bloody nose? How many of you have been sick with the flu or with a cold or with COVID? Right? Have you ever had to take antibiotics? Right? These are just a few examples of the weakness of our bodies. These bodies. You should do all you can to keep your body as healthy. Don't abuse your bodies. They are temples of the Holy Spirit. But you can't prevent them forever. Death will overtake all of us because these temples are not only weak. They are temporary. But in the resurrection, your body will be raised in power. No longer will the spirit be willing, but the flesh weak. Our bodies will be able to do that which we desire and that which God commands. The final contrast is that our bodies are so natural, but raised spiritual. There's going to be a vast difference in the sphere in which our bodies will exist. Right now, our bodies are suited to exist in the natural sphere of our physical world. And with these bodies, we can do so many things in our world. But there's still limitations, right? We can climb the tallest mountain, right? not without oxygen. We can go to the bottom of the sea, not without a submarine. We can go to the moon, but not without a spaceship or a spacesuit. These bodies are wonderfully suited for an earthly existence, but all within certain natural limitations. But in the resurrection, you will be raised spiritual. Your body will be suited for a heavenly realm and the best reference we have are the words of Jesus in Luke 20 when he refuted the Sadducees about the resurrection. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. He didn't say you become angels. He said you're like angels in certain ways. And one of them happens to be that we're not going to be married. Now, we all kind of wag our heads at that because we can't imagine that. That just means there's something better to replace it, friends. Do you see that? That's why you can look forward to this. It's going to be so good that you won't even regret not being married. Be quiet if you regret being married now. Your body will be perfectly suited. For a heavenly existence. Now why does God want us to know all this? Let me bring this to a close. Why does God want us to know all this? He wants us to know that this life, for good or for bad, is not all there is. 
Your best life is not now, Christian. It's still to come. It doesn't matter if you die at 7 or 70 or or 97. You will be raised and you will be with Jesus forever. And that is what it is all about. Nothing else ultimately matters except whether or not you will be with Jesus forever when you die. And if you can't say that, you're not ready to die. Trust me. The Bible is clear. Your sins that separate you from you from God today, in death they will separate you from Him forever. It is a place of utter torment. It's called hell. It's reserved for those who reject God's offer of pardon that's freely given in this life. That does not have to be you. You can repent. You can put your faith in the one whom God sent to rescue sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. Nothing else matters, friend. Nothing else. You are going to live forever somewhere. For the Christian, God will resurrect and transform your earthly body into one fashioned by his power to glorify Christ forever. Amen. We thank you, Lord. You don't want us to lose sight of why we are here. It's to serve you now in these bodies. These bodies of humiliation. But you want to give us hope to look forward to the life to come. So that we will not lose heart in working as unto you and in keeping ourselves pure and walking with you. Oh, I wish I could say we kept ourselves perfectly pure we can't and we're so thankful that we have such a a sufficient savior who saved us from all of our sins but oh lord keep our sights set on serving the lord jesus christ all our days and in these bodies but looking forward to the new ones to come the eternal ages with you forever in jesus name amen